If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn in them to Revelation chapter 2. We will finish chapter 2 this morning. We have looked at the church in Ephesus as Jesus is dictating these letters to these to, to the Apostle John as he writes them to these various churches in the cities around Asia Minor. To the church in Ephesus, he warned against growing cold in our heart, warned against our love for God and others growing cold. To the church in Smyrna, he warned them not to fear suffering, no matter how bad it gets. Last week, the church in Pergamum was warned against compromising theologically and morally. Well, this morning we read about the church in a city called Thyatira who is warned against tolerating sin in the church. So let's read verses 18 through the end of the chapter and then pray. This is the word of God. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith, and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, And is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father." And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for the privilege of gathering together as a faith family, worshiping you through song, worshiping you through the elements of the Lord's Supper, and now worshiping you by giving attention to your word. We ask, Father, that you would edify your church this morning, encourage us where we need to be encouraged, challenge us where we need to be challenged, 
correct us where we need to be corrected, but Lord, do it from your word. May that edification and that correction not come from me, but from you in your word. We're so grateful that we have this book in our hands and that we can trust that it is your very breath. Speak to us now. Speak to your church and grow us in you so that we might be changed to look more like your son Jesus so that we might bring glory to you. We ask this in faith, in Jesus' name, amen. So this is the letter from Jesus to the church in Thyatira. It's the longest of the letters that we find in chapters 2 and 3, but it follows the very same general outline that all of the other letters follow. There's an opening that we find in verse 18. There's the body of the letter, the largest portion of the letter in verses 19 through 25. And then he closes it out in the last four verses of chapter 2. So in the opening, we see the same two elements that we see in the opening of each of these letters. First of all, we see the identification of the audience to whom it is written. And this one is clearly written to the church in Thyatira. He says in verse 18, to the angel of the church in Thyatira. Thyatira. So Thyatira is an inland city. Um, it's about, it was about 70 miles southeast of Pergamum. And so we started out in Ephesus on the, on the shore of the Aegean Sea, and then we moved north to Smyrna, then we moved up and a little bit to the east of Pergamum, and now we're making the turn down to Thyatira. And so Jesus is riding to these seven churches in Asia Minor, and he's making the turn now as he reaches what is the halfway point in his letters to these seven churches. And we're going to continue that circle all the way around Asia Minor as we continue through chapter 3, beginning next week. So it was an inland city. And uh, as we've mentioned with each of these others, uh, with all of the other cities up to this point, the imperial cult, which required the Roman citizens in these towns to worship the emperor, was big in each of these cities, but not so in Thyatira. It's not that there wasn't <clears throat> emperor worship that was happening, but it, just, it was not a big part of life in this city. Thyatira was removed a little bit more from some of the, the, the more uh, heavy uh, emperor worship that was happening in Asia Minor. So that wasn't that big of a deal in this particular city. We also mentioned in a lot of the cities up to this point there, that there were these famous large temples and altars. Well, there weren't any really large and famous temples or altars in Thyatira. doesn't mean they didn't have temples and altars. They had lots of them to a lot of the Roman gods. But there was nothing like the great temple to Artemis that we saw in Ephesus or the temple to Roma in Smyrna or the great altar to Zeus that was in Pergamum, as we saw last week. There were lots and lots of smaller altars and smaller temples to lesser Roman gods. And we know that there's evidence of uh, pagan worship happening all over this city because there's evidence here that they were sacrificing to these idols. And so, but there was no big, large kind of uh, temple in town. What was big in Thyatira as was the case in Pergamum, were these trade guilds. 
And as we mentioned last week, if you wanted to, to make an income in town, if you wanted a job and learn a, a particular trade and practice a particular trade in town, no matter what it was, whether it was carpentry or masonry or pottery or whatever the case might be, ironworks, in order to be a part of that trade guild, you had to pay homage to the Roman deity assigned to that particular uh, trade guild and, and participate. Some of the commentators even note that many of these trade guilds held annual uh, festivals, an annual love feast where everyone that was a part of that particular trade in town would uh, eat and drink and participate in these pagan rituals and pay homage to the deity associated with that guild. So that was very prevalent in this city. So that, that was what the culture surrounding this church was like, and Jesus writes to that church. We also see in this opening a self-characterization of Jesus. Jesus does this with all the letters. He, he says, these are the words from whoever, and he identifies himself and characterizes himself a certain way. So here he says, these are the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished Bronze. So three elements to this self-characterization here. The Son of God, eyes like flaming fire, feet like burnished bronze. So the, the flaming eyes and the, the feet uh, that were like burnished bronze, that's, again, borrowing some of that imagery from the vision of Jesus that we saw in chapter 1. And when we covered that vision, we saw that the fiery eyes represented Jesus' ability and authority to bring judgment that with these flaming eyes, he is able to penetrate past our actions and see our heart and see our mind, and he is able to bring judgment against us because of those things, not just what we see, but what he sees with his flaming eyes. And so that dealt with uh, his ability to judge. The burnished bronze, we noted, were probably a reference to Jesus' strength. Uh, bronze was stronger than tin, which was common in these, uh, in these cities. Uh, it was also stronger than pure copper. And so it was a, it was a reference to Jesus' strength and judgment. It was also a reference to his purity because it wasn't just bronze. It was burnished bronze, which meant that it had been refined in the furnace and then polished to have a brilliant sheen. And so it was a reference to his purity as well. So this is the image of Jesus as the righteous judge who has the ability and the authority to judge rightly and fairly and thoroughly with strength and purity. But Jesus also refers to himself here as the Son of God. Now, that was not part of the vision of chapter 1. In chapter 1, as John sees Jesus, he refers to Jesus as one like a son of man. That was a recollection of the Son of Man that we see in Daniel chapter 7. But here, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of God, which is a reference to Daniel 10. Now, by the way, this is one of those places in Scripture that is a very clear and unambiguous declaration by the Lord Jesus that he is the Son of God. Some people like to claim and debate that Jesus never claimed to be the Son of God. Well, this is one of the places in Scripture where he does so very clearly. But this use of Son of God is also a nod to another passage of the Old Testament, and that is the second psalm. In, in Psalm chapter 2, twice, they were, it refers to, the psalmist refers to the Son of God. And this letter to the church in Thyatira relies very heavily on, 
on Psalm 2. And we're going to see reference to Psalm 2 in multiple places throughout this letter to the church in Thyatira. And one of them is this reference to the Son of God, something that that psalm mentions twice, referring to his judgment. So Jesus characterizes himself here as the righteous judge who has the ability and the authority to judge, and as the Son of God from Psalm 2, who brings, as we read through Psalm 2, we see that the Son of God is listed as one who brings judgment against rebellious mankind. And so this is a foreboding indication of what Jesus is going to say to this church in Thyatira. So let's move now on to what he actually tells them, the body of the letter. As with many of the other letters, Jesus commends something of them, he accuses them for something, he warns them against something, and he exhorts them to do something. So let's look at each of those. First of all, what does Jesus commend about this church? Look at verse 19. Jesus says, I know your works, your love, your faith, and service, and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. I don't know about you, but that sounds like this church is doing pretty good, right? It seems like Jesus holds this church in high esteem. He says, you're doing well with your works and your love and your faith and your service and your patient endurance. That's pretty good. And not only that, but apparently they're growing in their works. They're growing in their faithfulness and their obedience because their latter works exceed the first. The opposite was true in Ephesus, right? The, the church in Ephesus was exhorted to go back and do the deeds that you, done, you had done at first, right? Because their latter works were less than. They had grown cold in their heart, and so they were told, go back and do the things that you did at first. But this church in Thyatira, Thyatira is commended because their recent works exceeded their first works. And so they're growing in faithfulness. They're growing in their obedience to the Lord. And we should note before we move on here that Jesus commends them for these things. You're doing well in these areas. And so that means that this church for us is exemplary in this regard. They they are an example to us of growing in love and growing in faith and growing in service and patient endurance. And so may God do that among us and cause us to grow in these areas as well. But there is no perfect church, and this church in Thyatira is no exception. So Jesus not only commends them, but now he accuses them. In verse 20, he says this, But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. So there was a woman in the church at Thyatira who called herself a prophetess. Now, commentators like to discuss whether or not her real name was Jezebel or whether Jesus was just referring to the Jezebel from that story back in 1 Kings. If you recall that story, Jezebel was the, she was a follower of Baal, a pagan god, an evil uh, false god, and she was the wife of King Ahab, 
King Ahab was the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. And he went and violated God's command, and he went and took this woman from the Sidonians, who was a follower of Baal, and made her his wife. And that introduced all kinds of junk into the northern kingdom of Israel. She brought with her her worship of Baal, this false god. And she brought with her many, many prophets of Baal who ended up booting out the prophets of Yahweh, the true prophets of God. They got rid of them. And so the northern kingdom was just overrun with prophets of Baal and temples and Asherah poles, these these, uh, altars to the false god Baal. And it all came through Jezebel, the wife of King Ahab. Well, whether this woman who was in this particular church in Thyatira, whether her name was truly Jezebel or it was just um, a reference to that, that she was like that, she called herself a prophetess. Now, the, the church there in Thyatira didn't formally recognize her as a prophetess. She just called herself that. She assumed that role for herself and so as, a, as someone who is calling themselves a prophetess, she was uh, purporting that when she spoke, that she was speaking God's words, that she was speaking forth the very words of God. And so she taught, and when she taught, she seduced, apparently, some of the members of this church to do things that were strictly forbidden, namely, to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, we don't know the exact content of the teaching that this Jezebel woman brought into the church at Thyatira. We're given, a, I think, a hint later in verse 24 when a word is given to those in Thyatira who do not hold to her teaching. Jesus says, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. Now, perhaps that means that some of her teaching was satanic, Or perhaps that just means that the effect of her teaching was satanic on the church and what it did to the church in Thyatira. We don't know much about the content of her teaching, but we do know the result of her teaching. And the result of her teaching was that some of the members of this church, those identified here as uh, servants of Jesus, he calls them my servants, were seduced. The New American Standard says they were led astray to practice sexual immorality, the Greek word porneo, which is any kind of sexual immorality, and to eat foods sacrificed to idols. Now we should note that the eating of food sacrificed to idols that Jesus speaks of here in Revelation 2 should be distinguished from the food offered to idols that the Apostle Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul says that eating food sacrificed to idols is not forbidden. That it's okay for Christians to eat food that's been offered to idols unless it causes a brother or sister to stumble in their walk. But there, Paul was talking about when Christians go to the marketplace in order to buy meat. Some of that meat may have been offered to idols at some point. And Paul tells them that's okay. It's all okay to eat unless it causes a brother to stumble. But here in Revelation chapter 2, that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's saying that some of the members of this church in Thyatira 
who had been seduced and, and led astray by the teaching of Jezebel, they weren't just going to the marketplace to buy meat. They were going to the pagan altars and temples, and they were, they were participating in that worship. They were partaking of the love feasts that were going on in these temples, and they were engaging in these pagan practices, and as a part of that, eating the food that was also offered to idols. And this pagan worship was clearly forbidden. What's being spoken of in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 by the Apostle Paul falls under the auspices of Christian liberty. But what, is talking, what Jesus is talking about in Revelation 2, quite honestly, falls under the auspices of the Ten Commandments. Namely, Commandments 1 and 2. You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not bow down to idols. And so these were things that were strictly forbidden and categorically sinful. But what is it exactly that Jesus holds against this church? He doesn't hold against them that some of the members had flirted with this false teaching and had begun to compromise in these areas. It's not even that they listened to the false teaching from this Jezebel which has led them astray. Those things are certainly happening here. And Jesus without a doubt, is disappointed in them for this. But that's not, in this letter, what Jesus is accusing this church of. That was what Jesus held against the church at Pergamum that we saw last week. There were members of that church who were holding to the teachings, you recall, of Balaam and of the Nicolaitans. And as a result of that, they were compromising themselves theologically and morally. And Jesus held that against that church. And so without a doubt, Jesus is disappointed in them that some of them have fallen victim to this false teaching and have fallen into these sins and compromised themselves morally. But that is not what Jesus holds against this church in Thyatira. Or at least that's not what he's writing to them about in this letter. So what is he holding against them? For these guys in this church... He holds against them, not that they listened to Jezebel, but that they tolerated her. This wasn't a teaching that was coming from the outside in. This wasn't a teaching that was from outside the church. This is a teaching that came from inside the church, and they tolerated it. They saw that her her teaching was leading some in this church astray. And that as a result, some were beginning to practice immorality and engage in these pagan worship practices. They saw this happening in their church. They saw their brothers and sisters in Christ giving into it. And they tolerated it. They tolerated the teaching and they tolerated Jezebel herself. This is the opposite, again, of the problem that existed in the church at Ephesus. You recall that the church of Ephesus was actually commended for testing those who called themselves the apostles but were not and found them to be false. The problem is they did that at the expense of love. And they lost their love. Their love for God and their love for one another grew cold as a result of that. But this church in Thyatira, who is commended for their love, doesn't test this self-proclaimed prophetess named Jezebel. And so 
they don't find her to be false in any kind of formal sense, but instead they tolerate her. I think they knew her to be false. Otherwise, they wouldn't be tolerating her, but they just didn't do anything about it. The church in Ephesus elevated truth over love, while this church in Thyatira elevates love over truth. And what we should see, church, is that both of those are in error. When we elevate truth at the expense of love, then we don't get truth, real truth. And when we elevate love over truth, we don't get either. We don't get truth or love. Because, friend, it's, it's not loving to allow your brother or sister in Christ to plunge headlong into the judgment of God without warning them. And that's what's happening here. This is, after all, the point of church discipline. To warn the one who is headed towards judgment. To warn them, judgment is coming. In fact, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. I want us to look at this very clearly. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus lays out the need for and the application of discipline in the New Testament church. And the aim of church discipline as Jesus lays it out is to restore the one who is in sin. That they are in some way out of step with God, out of step with the Bible. And the goal of church discipline is to restore them through repentance. But as we see here, Matthew 18 also tells us that the elders aren't the only one involved in this process. In fact, the word elder is not even used in this passage. But what is clear in this passage, what the words that are used here are the church, the gathering of God's people. Jesus says in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. That's the first step. Between you and him alone. Not between you and your neighbor, not between you and someone else in the church that you want to gossip about them, not between you and, and the elders of the church, but between you and him alone. Jesus is very clear there. You and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. That's the goal of church discipline. You've restored him. That's the aim. If he listens to you, you have gained him. But if he does not listen, second step. Take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So now you bring one or two others along with you and say, brother, this is sin. And we just want to show this to you. We love you, but this is wrong. And we, and we implore you to confess that and repent of that and turn and change. Again, the aim is to restore them. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, third and final step, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So Jesus gives us here a very clear three-step process for how to deal with a brother or sister who is in unrepentant sin. 95% of church discipline should take place in that first step, one-on-one. And that's all of our responsibilities who are covenant members of this church, one-on-one. Of the remaining 5%, most of that, the vast majority of that should take place in step two, two or three on one. I would say that less than 1% of church discipline should come to this third and final step, 
which is to tell it to the church, which means to bring it to the elders at that point who are responsible for making sure that step one and step two have actually occurred. They're still unrepentant and that they are called to call that person to repentance in front of the church. Tell it to the church so that they might repent and be restored. And Jesus says if they still don't repent, then we are to treat them as a Gentile or a tax collector that is treating them as a sinner, as someone who doesn't know Christ, which involves removing their church membership from them because we no longer have any evidence to affirm their profession of faith, that it's genuine and real. A person who has been excommunicated in this sense, that's what that means, is no longer a member of that church, but they're not, they're not barred from attending the church services because, in fact, that's what they need most at that time. They need to see and hear the gospel. But if any point in this process, and this is, this is the point of what Jesus is talking to this church about, if at any point in this process we decide to tolerate sin instead of graciously, courageously, and lovingly addressing it, then the process breaks down completely. And that is what happened here in Thyatira. There was obvious sin going on. There was a member of this church who was instigating this problem and was causing others to stumble and be led astray. And the church didn't address it. It swept it under the rug. It avoided it and ignored it and tolerated it instead of addressing it. Whether it was because they didn't want to offend Jezebel or they didn't want to ruffle her feathers or didn't want to upset the apple cart or whether they were fearful of rejection or didn't want to appear unloving, whatever the reasoning was, the end result was that their toleration of her sin ended up being the most unloving thing that they could do. Addressing it and confronting it would have been the loving thing to do, but they tolerated it. And that was a more of a display of self-love than a love of Jezebel. So because they didn't address it, Jesus said, you had your chance. Now I'm going to address it. So now we have the the warning of judgment. Now first, in verse 21, it appears that, Jesus, uh, that, that Jezebel herself had been warned, and she had been warned to repent and given time to repent. Jesus says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Perhaps there was someone in the church who did show her this. Maybe they, maybe they went even to step two and, and, and brought another couple of witnesses with them and said, no, this is sin, this is wrong. You shouldn't keep doing this. You're leading people astray. Maybe the church in Thyatira didn't have the courage to pull the trigger on step three. We don't know. But Jesus says, I gave her time to repent. And what we should see is this was supremely gracious of Jesus. He didn't have to give her time to repent. She certainly didn't deserve that. But he gave it. And friend, isn't isn't the Lord gracious and patient and merciful with us each and every day to give us time to repent we don't deserve that we don't earn that 
but he gives it because that is part of his nature. He is gracious. He is merciful. He is patient. And so he's, he's patient to give us time to work through the process of conviction and confession and repentance. He gives us, he's patient to give us time to repent. But friend, his patience is not limitless. His patience is not without end. And at the end of his patience with sin is judgment. And so here comes his promise of judgment now. This is where the warning begins in verses 22 and 23. Pastor Juan Sanchez in his book, Seven Dangers That Face Your Church, which is basically an exposition of uh, Revelation chapters 2 and 3 in these letters, notes that there are four truths here about Jesus' judgment that become readily apparent in verses 22 and 23. First of all, we see that Jesus' judgment is severe. It's severe. Jesus says, Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. Juan Sanchez writes, We don't normally associate God's judgment with sickness and suffering, but the idea is not foreign to the Bible. We just heard about that from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. As Paul is instructing the church in Corinth about the taking of the, of the, the, the fruit of the vine and the bread at the Lord's Supper table, what did he warn? Some of you are abusing the Lord's Supper. And because of this, some of you are sick and ill and some of you have died as a result of how you abuse the Lord's Supper. The idea of this is not foreign to Scripture. It doesn't mean that all sickness is a result of judgment of sin. Please don't hear me saying that. But some is. We know that all sin ultimately leads to death. And so death itself is the display of the severity of God's judgment on man's sin. And that is what we're meant to see here. That that God's judgment of sin is severe. In those things we see a taste of the severity of God's judgment of sin which is to come. And if we only knew it, we would fear it and seek to avoid it. God's judgment is severe. That's what he warns them of. Secondly, we see that his judgment is thorough. Jesus is clear here that Jezebel is not the only one who's going to be judged. He tells John in verse 22 that those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And then the beginning of verse 23, and I will strike her children dead. Being duped by a false teacher is not an excuse for falling into sin. That's what Jesus says. Each of us, each of us is responsible for our own sinful actions and choices. The adultery that is listed here, those who commit adultery with her, I believe in part refers to physical, literal adultery, any kind of sexual immorality outside the boundaries of biblical marriage. But I think he's also here in part referring to spiritual adultery. Exchanging um, devotion to God or replacing devotion to God with devotion to another God, little g. A devotion to idols. And that's certainly what was happening here in Thyatira. What some of them had done, at least, was a form of spiritual adultery, spiritual unfaithfulness against God. 
And judgment is coming, Jesus said, against those who commit such spiritual adultery. And judgment is coming for those whom Jesus calls here her children. In other words, her followers, those who are coming after her. Judgment is coming. But there is time to repent, just as there is with Jezebel. Judgment is coming unless, Jesus says, unless they repent of her works. And so if they repent, if they turn, if they, if they change, then judgment won't come. But if they do not, then judgment is coming. And it will be severe. And it will be thorough. And thirdly, it will be just. Look at the end of verse 23. Jesus says, I will give to each of you according to your works. Remember, he's got those eyes like flaming fire that see every action, every thought, every word. And as verse 23 says here, searches mind and heart. He sees everything we do, everything we say, everything we think, everything that's in our heart. And as we'll see later in Revelation chapter 20, that at the final judgment, there will be a book in which will be recorded every action we take, every word we say that comes out of our mouth, every thought that goes through our mind, and every desire of our heart will be written in this book, and sinners will be judged accordingly. To all of it. The judgment of God against sinners like you and I is depicted in Scripture as severe and thorough, but also supremely just. God's judgment is not unfair, it is well deserved, and it is just. But fourthly, we see here also that Jesus' judgment displays his power and his authority and his glory. He says in verse 23, and all the churches, when I do this, all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. In other words, the judgment that comes will display that this Jesus is the Son of God that the psalmist writes about in Psalm chapter 2. Listen to the last four verses of Psalm 2. Speaking of this Son of God, the psalmist writes, You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. We'll see those very same words and phrases used in Revelation 2 verse 27 in just a moment. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. Don't kiss the idol. Don't kiss the false god. Kiss the Son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And so we're told here in Revelation 2, verse 23, that when judgment comes on these Thyaterans, it will display Jesus as the son of Psalm 2, who has both the power and the authority to execute judgment on sinners. God's judgment of sinners displays his holiness and his glory. 
If he didn't judge sin severely and thoroughly and justly, it would detract from the display of his holiness and his glory. But the reality is, God is glorified in the just judgment of sinners. And so his warning here is a promise of judgment. Judgment is coming for those who do not repent. And then the final portion of the body of this letter is Jesus' exhortation to the church in Thyatira. So what exhortation does he give? Two, two exhortations that I see here. One is implicit, one is explicit. The implicit exhortation is what we've already said. Don't tolerate sin. Instead, confront it. Confront it. Address it in yourself and in your church. When you recognize sin in your own life, Jesus gives us some radical advice in the Sermon on the Mount to take drastic measures to address it. Listen to what he says in Matthew 5. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Jesus says, do not play patty cake with sin in your life. Take radical, drastic measures to mortify the flesh. Jesus says here that when we recognize sin in the church, don't tolerate it. Don't sweep it under the rug. Don't play patty cake with it. Don't just try to ignore it and avoid it. But address it and confront it. Instead of tolerating it, confront it one-on-one, then two-on-one. And then, if necessary, tell it to the church. May we be the kind of church that has the, the courage and the love for one another to be faithful and obedient to this exhortation. That's implicit here because of what he holds against them. The explicit exhortation that Jesus gives here in verses 24 and 25 is to hold fast to what you have. Hold fast to what you have. He says, To the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. In other words, those of you who have not accepted Jezebel's teaching, you've not been led astray into these to to compromise yourself in these areas. Jesus says, I don't lay on you any other burden than to hold fast what you have until I come. Hold fast. Which means to embrace it. Cling to it. Have a firm grasp on it. On what? On what you have until I come. What do they have? Well, they have Jesus. They have Jesus' teaching, the gospel. And they have the church, the bride of Christ. Cling to these things. Embrace them. Cling to Jesus. Embrace his bride. Have a firm grasp and grip on the gospel until I come. 
which is a beautiful pointing to his return, the perusia, the glorious appearing of Jesus at his second coming. So may we hold fast to these things as well, church. May we hold fast to Jesus. May we embrace his bride, the church. May we have a firm grip on the gospel until Jesus returns. If we hold fast to these things, to Jesus, to the gospel, to the church, then we'll be less likely to fall under the influences of the Jezebels of our day. Then we move on to the closing here in these last four verses. And here we see the same two elements that we've seen in all of the closing and we'll see in the remaining three letters to the last three churches. First, we see a promise to the one who conquers. Look at verses 26 through 28. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. And so the promise to the one who conquers here is a promise that they will reign and rule with Christ. Verses 26 and 27 here are directly from Psalm 2. Let me read Psalm 2 again. Verses 7 through 9, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And so this is a promise to the one who conquers by faith in Jesus Christ that you will reign and rule with Christ. And he says, I will give you the morning star, which is pointing forward to Revelation chapter 2, the last chapter of the Bible, where Jesus is called the bright and morning star. Jesus said to the one who conquers, I will give myself. This is a great promise to reign and rule with Christ. Now, the promise to the one who conquers, to reign and rule with Christ can mean a couple of different things depending on your preferred flavor of eschatology, right? So I don't want to fast forward to chapter 20 of Revelation prematurely, but for the sake of time, if you take the thousand years referred to in Revelation chapter 20 as a, as a, as a literal millennium where Jesus is going to set up his millennial reign and reign for a thousand years, then you're likely to see here a future orientation to these closing verses of chapter 2. That, that we will be given authority over the nations, and that we will rule with Christ in that millennial kingdom after the second coming. But if, on the other hand, you believe that that millennium referred to, the thousand years referred to in Revelation chapter 20, is referring to a spiritual millennium, that it's happening now, perhaps in heaven, then you're likely to understand these verses in the closing verses of chapter 2 to have a present orientation, that we reign and rule with Christ today in his present spiritual kingdom. By the way, both of those things are biblical truths. I happen to prefer the former, and so I see a future orientation to this promise here at the end of chapter 2, but I prefer that because I believe that Revelation 20 is referring to a thousand-year reign. 
for reasons that I will share with you later when we get there. I promise you. That's not for today. But today, we're just meant to see this wonderful promise that those who conquer, those who heed the warnings and obey these exhortations will reign and rule with Christ the Lord. And we're reminded that we don't conquer by our own self-effort. We don't conquer by trying to be a good Christian. We conquer through faith in Jesus Christ. That's how we conquer. So what a beautiful promise we who know Jesus as Lord have. And then in closing, the second element of all of these closings of these letters is a reminder that this exhortation is for all the churches, not just the one in Thyatira. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. So these exhortations and these warnings are for New Branch Community Church as well. They're for you and I, church. Don't tolerate sin in yourself or in your church. Instead, confront it. Hold fast to Jesus. Hold fast to the gospel. Hold fast to his bride. Embrace her. To the one who doesn't, judgment is coming. And it is severe and thorough and just. To the one who does, to the one who conquers, we will reign and rule with Christ our King and Redeemer forever. See, the one who conquers by faith in Jesus Christ will escape judgment. That book will be opened at the judgment, at the final judgment. The one that includes all of our thoughts, all of our words, all of our actions. And then Jesus will say, oh, but there's another book. There's a book of life. And this one's name is written in it. And we will not be judged by that other book. Because judgment has already been poured out on the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. But the one who doesn't conquer, the one who hasn't and doesn't come to faith in Jesus Christ, he or she will not escape judgment. And friend, if that is you, if you've never come to faith in Jesus Christ, then please understand that unless you do, when you face him, that book will be opened. And every action you've ever taken, everything you've ever done, every word you've ever said, every thought, every desire of your heart will be laid bare. And you'll have to answer for all of it. And a just and thorough and severe judgment that is fair will be meted out on you for all of eternity. Friend, this is why God sent his son Jesus Christ to die on a cross to absorb a just penalty for our sin so that we might escape judgment ourselves and be reconciled to our God. If that describes you, I beg of you, be reconciled to God this morning through faith in Jesus Christ as your only hope. Let's pray.
Father, we do pray for that person among us, that person who maybe is in our workplace or living in our neighborhood who needs to hear that, that hard news of coming judgment for sin. God, we pray that you would give them the faith, the trust in Jesus Christ as their only hope, to not trust in their ability to try to be better, to not trust in their ability to try to improve themselves and be a better person and not do certain things and do other things that are good. Lord, show them the folly of that, that there's nothing they can do to make themselves right before you, just as none of us could. And Lord, give them the faith, the trust in Jesus Christ to see him as Lord, to see him as Savior and Redeemer. As he willingly allowed himself, as we celebrated earlier, to be nailed to a cross, to shed his blood on behalf of those who had rebelled against him. I pray for that person, Lord. We pray for them, that you would give them the faith, the trust in Jesus for rescue. Father, we're thankful for the warning that we see in this passage to not tolerate sin in ourselves, in our faith family. Lord, would you give us the courage? Would you give us the love? Would you give us the grace to confront sin where we see it so that your name might be glorified in us and through us? And Lord, would you... Would you lead us to hold fast to you, to your son, to the gospel, and to your bride until Jesus returns and leads us to reign and rule with him forever. We're thankful for that future, Lord. Until then, make us faithful for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.